This is History 2311, Week 3A, American Empire. Here's a question for you. Is the United States an empire or does the United States have an empire? Uh, This question has been much discussed in the 21st century and before. Back in the late 19th century, which we're talking about today, uh, empires weren't embarrassed about being empires. Uh, for, For most of the European imperial powers, empire was seen as a good thing, something for a powerful country to aspire to. During the 20th century, as the United States rose to superpower status, there was no question by, say, 1945, that the United States was a leading power, if not the leading power in the world, the so-called leader of the free world. But even at the height of American power, Americans generally rejected the label of empire. Uh, To them, the, the, the label of empire or imperialism implied some kind of control imposed by force. And it was really only critics of American foreign policy and uh, the people of the world who were on the blunt end of American foreign policy who called the United States an empire. In the 21st century, after the terrorist attacks of September 11th, 2001, and especially as it became clear that the American response to those attacks was going to be a long, seemingly endless series of conflicts in places like Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, the the empire debate has returned. In the early 2000s, some conservative or neoconservative Americans actually embraced the label of empire in a way that Americans had not since the late 19th century. Uh, While to critics of American empire, the events of, of the 21st century have really made it clear that permanent empire means permanent war. Today, I want to talk about the moment that seemed to mark America's arrival as a world power. Uh, But I say seemed because one of the questions I want you to think about is whether 1898 marked, whether 1898 really marked a change or whether we should see continuity in American expansion before and after the Spanish-American War in 1898. Boy, talk about your historical sources. Uh, This is a painting, actually a mural, called Westward the Course of Empire Takes Its Way, uh, which hangs in or or decorates a wall in the U.S. Capitol building. That is the the building that was stormed by uh, white supremacists and perhaps by the descendants of the people in this painting uh, just the other day. Talk about your historical sources. There is a lot going on in this painting, both literally and figuratively. I, I I could dive deep into it, but I'm trying to keep these lectures from getting too long. I encourage you to pause the video uh, or better yet, open up the PowerPoint slides and just explore this image. Uh, there is a lot going on here in this depiction of empire moving west. 
But our topic today is, is a slightly later moment. Uh, it circles around 1898, the Spanish-American War, and the really crucial and interesting debate that followed the Spanish-American War about what sort of world power America was going to be. Would it embrace imperialism and empire, or would it reject those things? Um, and that debate uh, would really echo through the 20th century and still echoes today. I want to warn you that there are a couple of images of dead bodies in this these slides. Nothing graphic, but possibly upsetting. And there are a couple more racist cartoons. I'm really not going out of my way to find these uh, racist caricatures, but they are kind of inescapable in the visual culture of the late 19th century. I'm going to start my story with Theodore Roosevelt, often known as Teddy Roosevelt, uh, because he, as an individual, he links the territorial expansion of the American West to the imperial expansion of the United States in 1898 and after, two, two histories that are often presented as distinct. And also, Roosevelt is just a really interesting character. In 1882, uh, as a young man, Theodore Roosevelt arrived in Albany, New York. He was just 23 years old, and he was the youngest man elected to the state legislature. Roosevelt came from a long line of very rich East Coast aristocracy. The Roosevelts were an extremely wealthy old Dutch family. Uh, they went all the way back to when New York was still New Amsterdam, controlled by the Dutch. And Teddy Roosevelt was young and rich and smart and ambitious and well-connected. He had just graduated from Harvard and he was looking forward to a high-powered career in politics. So he was dismayed to discover that nobody in Albany, that's where the New York state government is, nobody in Albany took him seriously. Basically the newspapers, the other politicians took one look at this guy and decided, oh, he's a lightweight, he's a sissy, he's not a real man. They made fun of his high voice, of his tight pants, of his fancy clothes. They called him things like Jane Dandy and Pumpkin Lily and the exquisite Mr. Roosevelt. All these nicknames and insults that were very clearly about masculinity and manliness. In fact, some people started calling Roosevelt Oscar, which was a reference to the era's most famous homosexual, Oscar Wilde. Now, Roosevelt didn't see himself this way. He wanted to be seen as masculine, a manly man. And in fact, he had grown up reading stories of the Western frontier, stories of cowboys and Indians and, and that sort of thing. So in 1883, he left New York and went out West to the Dakota Territory, where he bought a cattle ranch on the edge of the Badlands. And for a few years, he lived in a log cabin. He learned to ride Western style. He learned to shoot. He made friends with like genuine Western cowboy heroes like uh, Buffalo Bill Cody, the showman Buffalo Bill Cody, Pat Garrett, the man who had shot Billy the Kid, um, Seth Bullock, the famous sheriff of Deadwood. And Roosevelt very consciously, very deliberately remade his image, recreated himself in the image of a rugged Western frontiersman. And within five years, he was back in New York. He was running for mayor and the papers ate this stuff up and they were calling him the cowboy of the Dakotas. Now, there was clearly an element of make-believe in all of this. Uh, this photo, uh, you, if you look closely, you can see that he is not out in the woods. This photo was actually taken in a New York studio, but the papers ate this stuff up. 
Roosevelt didn't win election as mayor of New York, but his political career was revived. He ended up becoming New York City's police commissioner. And when the Republicans took back the White House in 1896, I talked a lot about the election of 1896 last time, when the Republicans took back the White House, Roosevelt became the assistant secretary of the Navy. As part of Roosevelt's campaign to remake his image, he also wrote a series of books about the West, things like memoirs of his, of his own hunting exploits, like the time he killed a wolf and the time he killed a bear, the time he killed an eagle. He also wrote a grand four volume history of the West called The Winning of the West. And The Winning of the West, uh, you know, it's this kind of breathless celebration of cowboys and Indian Western romance and drama. It celebrates frontiersmen like Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone. It's all about fighting Native Americans, uh, about pioneers hacking their way through the woods as the true heroes of American history. At one point in The Winning of the West, Roosevelt says, the most righteous of all wars is a war with savages, though it is apt to be the most terrible and inhuman. Now, this is kind of a hell of a thing to say uh, or to write in 1894, at a time when the U.S. Army is still actively putting down the native indigenous people of the West. This photo shows the aftermath of the Wounded Knee Massacre in the Dakota Territory in 1890, the same place that Roosevelt had played cowboy just a few years before. It's you know not nearly so romantic as, as the frontier legends of Roosevelt's imagination. The Wounded Knee Massacre, sometimes called the Battle of Wounded Knee, although that's being very friendly, traditionally marks the end of the so-called Indian Wars, or at least their military phase. Native Americans certainly remained in the West long after 1890, as they remain today, and they continued to struggle for self-determination and sovereignty. But Wounded Knee kind of marks the end of the outright military phase of that conflict. The Wounded Knee Massacre is also the tragic sequel to the story I told you last week about Sitting Bull, who you remember wiped out Custer's cavalry at the Battle of Little Bighorn, fled to Canada, then returned to take a job performing in Bill Cody's Wild West show. In the years leading up to Wounded Knee, the Plains Indians suffered many military defeats and were forced by the U.S. Army uh, onto smaller and smaller reservations. In February of 1890, the U.S. government announced that they were going to break up the Great Sioux Reservation, which encompassed most of what is now South Dakota, and they were going to move the Lakota and the Sioux onto five smaller reservations. Around that time, a religious movement called the Spirit Dance or the Ghost Dance had started in what is now Nevada and spread across a lot of the Western indigenous nations and groups. The ghost dance religion or the ghost dance movement was a, a kind of synthesis of native spirituality and Christianity. And the idea was that if native people purified themselves and lived godly lives, uh, the followers of the ghost dance said that Jesus Christ would return in the form of a native American and that he would bring with him the spirits of lost ancestors, along with the slaughtered buffalo herds, and all the other animals would return. So it's a kind of millenarian religious movement of the sort one often sees in people who are under extreme stress. The actual practice of the religion involved a dance, a slow, somber dance in a circle that the Lakota called the ghost dance or spirit dance. 
but white settlers in the West got really alarmed at the sight of these big gatherings of Native Americans doing the ghost dance. And, and they convinced themselves that the Native Americans were plotting an uprising or an attack. The American Bureau of Indian Affairs actually banned the ghost dance, but it kept spreading. People kept doing it. So they decided to take some native leaders into custody to try and squash what they called this messiah craze. But when a group of Indian police came to arrest Sitting Bull, the native leader who I talked about the other day, there was some kind of altercation and Sitting Bull was shot and killed. Fearing violence from the army, about 200 members of Sitting Bull's band left the reservation they were on to join up with another band led by uh, Chief Spotted Elk. But the U.S. Army came upon them and ordered uh, them to give up their weapons. And either somebody didn't comply or didn't understand, or they started doing the ghost dance, and the Army fired on them all at close range. And within minutes had killed uh, anywhere from 150 to 300 Lakota, uh, including unarmed women and children in one of the worst massacres of the Indian Wars. So Teddy Roosevelt's big regret was that he hadn't fought in any of these, quote, righteous wars. By the time he came west, they seemed to be coming to a close. And in 1892, Roosevelt said, the frontier proper has come to an end. He wasn't the only one to have that thought. Just a year later, the historian Frederick Jackson Turner made a similar argument in what would become an enormously influential essay called The Significance of the Frontier in American History. Turner's idea, which is known today as a frontier thesis, was that the frontier, this wide open territory into which Americans could expand, that the frontier was actually this great regenerating force in American history, that it was the true source of things like American individualism and democracy and freedom. But Turner looked at the United States Census of 1890, which declared that the frontier was gone. This is a map of population density, and the census defined the frontier in very concrete terms as simply the line between a certain population density and, 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 a, and a lower population density. And in 1890, the, the census said the frontier proper had disappeared. And for people like Turner and Roosevelt, the, the danger was that this national character, that if the frontier was the source of American democracy and individualism and freedom, then what would happen to those things if the frontier was gone? And what Roosevelt and Turner were observing about the American frontier was arguably true not just of the United States, but around the world. The 19th century had been a great age of imperial expansion. Now, empires were not new. Empires like the Roman Empire, the Chinese Empire, are really older than the nation state itself. But in the 19th century, a particular kind of colonial empire flourished in which the European powers acquired colonial holdings all over the world. Technological advances at this time made empire easy. Things like machine guns, the telegraph, improved medicine, all drastically lowered the cost for Europeans of subduing even the most distant and hostile lands. In the late 19th century, there's no question that Britain was the preeminent world empire, but there were older empires like Spain and Portugal, and there were newer ones like Germany, and even minor nations like Belgium and Italy, and some non-European ones like Japan were starting to get into the imperial act. 
you see on this map of colonial empires at 1900, there wasn't much left of the world to colonize, to take over. In North America, the Indian territory was ground down to a small hub, but the European powers had carved up Africa, they'd staked out the Middle East, they'd claimed just about every little island in the Pacific, and most of the European powers were camped out in Shanghai waiting for China to fall into their hands. Some Americans looked at maps like this and said, why not the USA? Where's the American empire going to be? And one of the Americans who said that was Teddy Roosevelt. In 1897, he said, I would welcome almost any war, for I think this country needs one. But it wasn't very hard to guess where that war was going to be. In a world of rising empires, one empire was conspicuously collapsing, and that was the Spanish Empire. Back in the 1600s and much of the 1700s, Spain had actually had the world's greatest empire. But by the late 1800s, uh, Mexico, Chile, Peru had all won their independence from Spain. And the Spanish basically held only Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines. And even these the Spanish could barely hold. The Cubans had been fighting for their own independence off and on for decades. And the Spanish rulers of Cuba kind of flailed back and forth between, on the one hand, attempting to reform their government there, and on the other hand, brutal repression. In a desperate attempt to regain control of Cuba, they forced the bulk of the rural Cuban population into fortified towns, which they penned in with barbed wire. Uh, barbed wire was a new invention from the US frontier. Hundreds of thousands of Cubans died in these camps of mass illness, starvation, death. And the name of these camps and the policy, the reconcentrado policy, gave the 20th century a new term concentration camps. There was considerable sympathy in the United States for the Cuban rebels. Uh, Cuban leaders, independence leaders like Jose Marti lived in the United States and wrote and advocated struggle from there. And the American press, especially the new mass circulation newspapers like Joseph Pulitzer's New York World and William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal, ran story after story about the noble Cuban freedom fighters and the brutality of the Spanish rulers. People like Roosevelt began to say, now is our time. Cuba is ours for the taking. The president, William McKinley, was more cautious. He wanted to protect trade. He wanted to protect U.S. investments in Cuba, but he did not want war. There was kind of a generational split in the debate over Cuba. Most of the war hawks in 1898, the people calling for war with Spain, were younger men, men who had missed the Civil War. People who had lived through the Civil War and fought in it, like McKinley, were often less eager. And in fact, McKinley said, I have been through one war. I have seen the dead pile up. I do not want to see another. McKinley tried to negotiate some kind of ceasefire between the Spanish and the Cuban rebels, but this was unsuccessful. He sent a battleship, the USS Maine, down to Havana Harbor uh, to protect American lives and especially American property. American companies had big investments in the Cuban sugar plantations. In February 1898, the battleship Maine exploded in Havana Harbor, killing 262 men. The explosion of the Maine was probably an accident. It was probably a fire in the, the coal bunkers in the ship, uh, which was surprisingly common. But the newspapers at the time screamed that this was an act of sabotage, of terrorism, of murder. And Remember the Maine uh, ended up replacing Remember the Alamo as the battle cry of a wounded nation. 
The American newspapers beat the drum for war. People like Roosevelt demanded McKinley take action. Finally, in April 1898, McKinley asked Congress to declare war on Spain. Now, not everyone was eager for this war, and anti-imperialists in Congress did add a rider to the war declaration. They passed what was called the Teller Amendment, which was an amendment to the declaration of war to make clear that this was not meant to be a war for territory or empire. And the Teller Amendment said that the United States disavowed any territorial conquest. It forbid the United States from annexing Cuba or taking over Cuba after the war was over, promised that when the war was over, the United States would leave Cuba to its people. After all the buildup, the war itself was almost an anticlimax. It was not a difficult war for the United States to win. The Secretary of State, John Hay, famously called it a splendid little war. Spain was weak and far away. The Spanish economy was only like one-tenth the size of the United States, and the Cubans were already in open rebellion. Really, the Americans were just coming in at the very end of a long, bloody conflict that had already bankrupted the Spanish Empire. Along with the regular army, Congress authorized the creation of a, a number of volunteer cavalry regiments, and the army was swamped with applicants and volunteers. But at the front of the line was Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt had missed his chance to be an Indian fighter, but he was not going to miss his chance to fight a foreign war. This story has been told many times, but it is still worth remarking on just how strange it was that this politician, remember he's the assistant secretary of the Navy, this politician who played such an important part in starting the war, a politician with no military experience, would also end up being the hero of the war's decisive battle. It seems like something out of a movie, but it actually did happen. In the Battle of San Juan Hill, Roosevelt and his regiment they were the first volunteer cavalry, better known as the Rough Riders. They were actually like fifth in line behind four other regiments to take the hills around Santiago. Roosevelt was bristling at being stuck at the back of the line and repeatedly requested permission to enter the fray. The instant he finally got permission, he sprang on his horse and charged. The Rough Riders roared up the hill. Roosevelt killed one Spaniard, his elbow was grazed by a bullet, and he and his men were among the first groups to get to the top of the hill. The battle was over in less than an hour. Later that day, with the Spanish subdued, Roosevelt and the Rough Riders reenacted their battle for the benefit of a film crew, some of the first documentary battle footage ever shot. Roosevelt was very careful to get his picture taken because he knew this was going to make him a national hero, and it did. Here's another image with a lot going on. This is a commemorative postcard issued to celebrate the, quote, liberation of Cuba in 1898. I mean, take a close look at this. What is What do we see here? So there's this little girl representing Cuba. You see, she, her, her crown says Cuba and her chains have been broken. So the little girl represents, she, she doesn't look particularly Cuban to me, but set that aside. Then we have these two soldiers or officers shaking hands. And one of them is wearing a Union, a Civil War uniform in Union blue, and the other is wearing a Civil War uniform in Confederate gray. So what is this image saying? Ostensibly, it's celebrating the liberation of Cuba, but really it's saying the Spanish-American War has somehow reunited the North and the South. It has brought back together the country after the Civil War. And, you know, this is just uh, a very interesting, I would say, inward looking, solipsistic American way of framing the Spanish-American War, that what it's really was all about was 
reuniting North and South and, and the Spanish uh, and the, the Cubans barely enter into it. But you know who really doesn't enter into it is the Filipinos. Because meanwhile, on the other side of the world, the Philippines were also in revolt against the Spanish Empire. Now, most Americans were not thinking about the Philippines when they entered this war. They thought this war was about Cuba. Most Americans probably didn't even know where the Philippines were. But Roosevelt did. And before the war began, Roosevelt, in his role as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, had ordered uh, Commodore George Dewey to amass his ships in Hong Kong and in the event of war to attack the Philippines. And that's what Dewey did. When war broke out, Dewey's fleet sailed from Hong Kong to the Philippines and easily destroyed the Spanish ships in Manila Harbor. Dewey and his ships then laid siege to Manila, which is the capital city of the Philippines, from the harbor, while meanwhile, Filipino insurgents, uh, led by Emilio Aguinaldo, were attacking the Spanish garrison from land. The Spanish in Manila were almost grateful to the United States for taking the Philippines off their hands. In fact, the Spanish governor general in Manila said that he was willing to surrender to white people, but not to the N-word. Uh, in other words, not to the Filipinos themselves. By August, less than three months after the war began, the Spanish surrendered, and an empire that had once spanned the Pacific from, and the Americas from California down to Buenos Aires was no more. McKinley and his government suddenly confronted this question. What was the United States going to do with these territories? The Teller Amendment expressly prohibited the United States from taking over Cuba but it said nothing about the Philippines or Puerto Rico. So with the war over and the Spanish fleet sunk and the Filipinos and Cubans cheering the independence they thought they had just won, the United States had a remarkable debate. Basically they debated, are we going to become an imperial power? What sort of world power do we want to be? It's very easy to be cynical about American power, to say that the United States was always expansionist, always imperialist, and always intended to build an empire. I have a lot of sympathy for that view, but it's not how most Americans see themselves or saw themselves. There was a strong case to be made against imperialism, and many Americans made it. Groups like the American Anti-Imperialist League argued that imperialism was against everything the United States stood for, that it ran counter to its own revolutionary history and its own highest ideals. And the anti-imperialists were every bit as patriotic and pro-American as the imperialists. They believed that America was an exceptional nation, but they believed that what was exceptional about it was that it rejected empire, that it stood for freedom around the world. I gave you some samples of, of the anti-imperialist arguments uh, in your readings for this week. You read uh, William Jennings Bryan talking about the United States as a, as a shining city on a hill. He said if the U.S. forsook that role, it would pay the price not just in blood and war, but in freedom at home. This argument that the anti-imperialists made that imperialism abroad inevitably comes home, comes home to roost. It corrodes freedom and democracy in the home country. And here's a quote from Jane Addams, who you also read this week, uh, saying that the subjugation of a people by force is disloyalty to the distinctive principles of American government, to the idea that all men, and for Adams, this included all men everywhere, including Filipinos, including Cubans, are entitled to life and liberty. Now, given the story I just told about the Indian Wars and the Wounded Knee Massacre, you might say, 
Well, the United States had been forcibly taking over territory for nearly a century before 1898. Why is seizing these islands in the Pacific really any different than seizing all this territory in the West? And that's a very good point. Probably what was different about Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico wasn't so much the land, but the people on it. If you look at American territorial expansion before 1898, the United States did rapidly annex take over new territories, but it rarely incorporated large non-white populations into America itself. Yes, the Native Americans in the West were forcibly incorporated, but relatively speaking, their numbers were small, and whenever possible, they were moved to reserves. The United States fought a war with Mexico back in the 1840s, and when they redrew the border after the Mexican-American War, they took the thinly populated northern parts of Mexico, the places that are now California, Arizona, New Mexico, without taking the, the southern parts of Mexico, the more, much more populous areas. In other words, they took the territory without the people. The Philippines were different than any territory the United States had absorbed. Uh, the Philippines are much bigger than you might think. They include over 7,000 islands, as much land mass as, as a state like Arizona or New Mexico, and in 1898, a population of nearly 8 million people. 8 million people, it should go without saying, who were not white. The population of the North American West was small enough that Americans could imagine statehood and citizenship for the white settlers in those regions. But were they prepared to offer such things to a million Puerto Ricans or 8 million Filipinos? That was the question. But the case for empire was made maybe even more loudly. The imperialists argued the military benefits of empire, the economic benefits, and what they considered the moral benefits. Here's a quote from Senator Albert Beveridge, who you also read this week, talking about how he said Puerto Rico and Cuba were the gateways to Latin America, strategic outposts for trade and commerce and the projection of power, and that the Philippines and also Guam and Hawaii, which were also taken over in these years, that they would be gateways to the Pacific and to Asia, that vast populous continent that has always filled American eyes with dollar signs. Beveridge said, the United States can hold naval bases, but uh, build coaling stations across the Pacific for American ships. And, and empire came to seem to the imperialists like an answer to the economic woes of the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, especially the overproduction problem. Latin America and Asia would supply resources for American industry and become a market for American goods. Imperialists also made a moral case for empire. Teddy Roosevelt's famous speech, The Strenuous Life, tied the fate of the Philippines to Roosevelt's own ideas about masculinity. He said, a man builds his character through rugged, strenuous effort, and that a nation is the same way. Imperialists talked about the white man's burden, the title of a famous poem by Richard Kipling, that it was the role, the job of the white nations, in particular, England and the United States to civilize and Christianize the quote unquote primitive peoples of the world. And there was much talk in America in these years of Anglo-American, Anglo-Saxon solidarity. This cartoon from Puck shows Uncle Sam and John Bull, avatars of the United States and Britain, distributing civilization, education, enlightenment to the poor benighted people of the world. 
And when we're talking about empire, it's important for Canadians not to get too smug or judgy about the American empire. This is the British empire in 1897. Everything in pink, every little island underlined in pink on this map is a place that Britain took over and controlled. The list of countries and places that the British Empire did not take over or try to take over is actually shorter than the list of the places they did. Here is a really unfortunate and, and racist cartoon, but also an extremely telling one about how American imperialists saw the United States role in the world. It's called School Begins. And as you see, uh, it shows Uncle Sam as a school teacher in a classroom training metaphorical children for self-government. And the class consists of well, the white children represent the American states. We see Texas, California, Florida, New Mexico. But in the front row, the new colonies of the Philippines, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, Cuba are represented as grumpy, unruly children of color, bad students who need to be disciplined by Uncle Sam, the school teacher. And once again, there's a lot going on here because it, it, just, it just gets better and better. In the background, you can see an African-American who is not even a student, he's just the janitor. You can see a Native American banished to the troublemaker's corner at the back of the room. And who's this at the door? Well, it's another sign of American ambition in these years. Uh, we see China is, is making his way to the schoolhouse. I don't know if you can read the chalkboard in the back. It says, England has governed her colonies whether they consented or not. By not waiting for their consent, she has greatly advanced the world's civilization. The U.S. must govern its new territories with or without their consent until they can govern themselves. So the cartoon is completely condescending and offensive, but it really illustrates the imperialist argument that some people weren't ready for democracy or self-government, that they had to be trained even against their will to be worthy of self-government and democracy. But quite possibly the most compelling argument for imperialism was everybody's doing it. Imperialists like Roosevelt and Beveridge said, if the United States does not claim the Philippines, somebody else will. The British will take it, the, the Germans or the Japanese, someone will take over. And this became, this has become one of the most lasting arguments for American empire. If not us, then who? And these arguments ultimately carried the day with most of the American people. But that didn't mean the fighting was over. As I, as I said earlier, perpetual empire means perpetual war. McKinley's government recognized the independence of Cuba. Remember, the Teller Amendment made it impossible for the United States to annex or acquire Cuba. But the government required the new Cuban government to write another amendment, the Platt Amendment, into their new constitution that said even though Cuba remains independent, it authorized the United States military to intervene to protect Cuban independence at any time in the future. The Platt Amendment and the treaties that ended the Spanish-American War also gave the United States a permanent naval base in Cuba uh, in what is now Guantanamo Bay. This is really a remarkable place. For the whole 20th century, even after the Cuban Revolution in the 1950s, even after Cuba became communist, the United States maintained a naval base in Cuba at Guantanamo Bay. And after 
2001, with the beginning of the war on terror, of course, Guantanamo Bay became the site of a notorious prison where the United States shipped suspected terrorists and Al-Qaeda members. It was actually very useful to the United States to have this prison, this outside the United States, where the human rights expected on U.S. soil do not apply. In December 1898, McKinley signed a treaty with Spain, ending the war and transferring control of the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam to the United States. In February 1899, the imperialists managed to ratify this treaty in the Senate, although it was a close thing. It passed by only one vote. The Filipinos almost immediately declared their independence from the United States, and so the United States sent soldiers to put the Filipinos down. And they ended up fighting a bloody counterinsurgency war there that would drag on for years, not unlike Afghanistan or Vietnam or Iraq. This pattern is all too common in U.S. history. The initial fight is not that hard, but it leads to this long, grinding, bloody counterinsurgency guerrilla war. The worst fighting of the Philippine-American War was with the Moro, who are the Muslim peoples of the southern Philippine islands. There's vicious fighting there and terrible massacres, like the Budaho Massacre or Moro Crater Massacre of 1906, in which U.S. soldiers killed something like 800 to 900 Moro who were holed up in the crater of an extinct volcano. W.E.B. Du Bois, the historian W.E.B. Du Bois, said this photograph here was the most illuminating thing I have ever seen. He said this should be hung in every American classroom next to the flag to show students what war and empire really mean. The Moros were finally pacified by about 1913, until the current war in Afghanistan, the Filipino-American War, was the longest war the United States has ever fought. In 1916, the U.S. did agree in principle to eventually grant independence to the Philippines, but that didn't end up happening until after the Second World War in 1946. The American desire to play a greater role in the Pacific was almost immediately tested after 1898. I want to talk a little bit at the end of this lecture about China, in order to compare kind of two possible paths for the United States' future role in the world. Now, China in 1898 had just fought and, and lost a war with Japan. And it seemed very likely, as I said before, that China could be partitioned and colonized by different imperial powers. That's what this print is kind of showing metaphorically, is that China is being surrounded and menaced by the Russian bear, uh, the American eagle, the British lion, the Japanese sun, uh, the French frog, you name it. In 1899 uh, into 1900, a popular uprising sprang up in northern China uh, that tried to drive out the foreign merchants and Christian missionaries. They called themselves uh, the Hiquan or the Righteous and Harmonious Fists. But because they practiced martial arts, Americans just called them boxers and named the rebellion the Boxer Rebellion. The so-called Boxers poured down from Shandong province. Uh, they killed a number of Christian Chinese who they viewed as collaborators with the Europeans, and they laid siege to the port cities where foreigners in China were concentrated. The United States joined a coalition of European powers called the Eight Nations, and the U.S. sent about 4,000 troops, along with a lot of European troops, to put down the rebellion, uh, to rescue foreigners in China, and to punish Chinese officials who had supported the boxers. 
Once the rebellion was put down, the British and the French were ready to carve up China territorially. Britain will take over this part, France will take over this part, Russia will get this part, and so on. But the United States insisted instead that the other powers agree to what they called the open door policy. And this was the brainchild of, of the American Secretary of State, John Hay. He said, China will remain open to trade with all countries, also open to Christian missionaries. Now, China had no say in this. The, the open door policy said that China could not impose tariffs. It could not close its ports to foreign trade. But it also said that no one European power could claim control of China or any part of China as an imperial possession. So the United States was preventing the European powers from carving up China in the kind of old imperial way. But it was not defending China's freedom. Instead, it was saying China has to remain open to business with everyone and we will protect free trade by force if necessary. So we return to the question, is the United States an empire? In the three examples I've talked about today of the Philippines and Cuba and China, I think we see the United States both embracing empire, but also exploring different kinds of empire, different flavors of empire. What the United States had in the Philippines from 1898 to 1946, basically, looked a lot like a traditional European colonial empire, an overseas territory taken and held by force, a US possession with US troops on the ground, U.S. flag flying, but the people there not allowed to become American citizens. That's imperialism. That's a colony. What the U.S. had in Cuba was a little different. Cuba was ostensibly independent, but the United States kept a naval base there and staked a claim so that no other power could move in. And then China was something similar, but also something new in that the United States was committed to protecting China's so-called independence, not independence as in self-determination, but independence from any one imperial power. The United States had used force not to seize new territory, but to impose free trade, to keep this huge market open to American business, but also to business from all over the world. And I think it is what the United States did in China, more than what it did in the Philippines, that pointed to the role the US would take for most of the 20th century. This would take a few more decades to become clear, but the United States aspired to a kind of world leadership with, without empire or a, a different kind of empire. During and after the First World War, Woodrow Wilson, who we'll talk about more in coming weeks, would articulate a vision for replacing the old system of rival imperial states, a world carved up into imperial trading blocks, with a democratic commercial world, a world where every port was open for business. Now, is that an American empire? In some ways, yes. In some ways, it's something even more audacious and ambitious than an American empire. It's a world remade in America's image, a new world system of American design and arguably under American control. Thanks for watching. 